sometimes when we come to a concept that's a little bit difficult for us to really grasp, it's helpful to take a look at the opposite or the flip of what that concept is. For most of us, you know, being poor in spirit is not a phrase we use on a regular occasion. I mean, did you get up this morning and, and look at your daughter and be like, now, honey, are you being poor in spirit when you're thinking about your brother? It's not a phrase we normally use. Or how many of you, I mean, maybe after reading your chapter, but on a normal basis, ask the Lord, Lord, help me to be poor in spirit. It's not a phrase we, we use a lot or a concept that we think about a lot. Even humility and pride's definitions have been so twisted or even promoted in wrong ways in our day and age that we need to be careful that the word of God is what's shaping our thoughts about God and ourselves, not what we're told on Instagram and Facebook. So one concept that just is saturated both these platforms as well as TikTok and others is the concept of self-love. The world screams the importance of self-love as a part of its self-esteem movement. Listen to this blog post from the president and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. So this is a foundation that invests in scientific research and they believe that science is the purveyor of hope for improving the lives of those who are mentally ill. So see if you can pick up unbiblical thinking or be comparing what I'm reading to scripture that would refute the thought patterns that are laid out here. Now, not every single thing that I'm about to read to you is necessarily wrong, but it's the background thought pattern behind what they're saying that is very, very dangerous. So I'm going to begin reading the blog post. I want you to be listening and be like, okay, if my friend were to say this to me, how would I help her see the truth of scripture according to this? So the name of the article is what is self-love? Before a person is able to practice it, first we need to understand what it means. Self-love is a state of appreciation for oneself that grows from actions that support our physical, psychological, and spiritual growth. Self-love means having a high regard for your own well-being and happiness. Self-love means taking care of your own needs and not sacrificing your well-being to please others. Self-love means not settling for less than you deserve. Self-love can mean something different for each person because we have many different ways to take care of ourselves. Figuring out what self-love looks like for you as an individual is an important part of your mental health. What does self-love mean to you? For starters, it can mean talking to and about yourself with love. Prioritizing yourself. Giving yourself a break from self-judgment, trusting yourself, being true to yourself, being nice to yourself, setting healthy boundaries, forgiving yourself when you aren't being nice or true to yourself. For many people, self-love is another way to self-care. To practice self-care, we often need to go back to the basics and listen to our bodies, Take breaks from work and move or stretch. Put the phone down and connect to yourself or others or do something creative. Eating healthily, but sometimes indulging your favorite foods. Self-love means accepting yourself as you are in this very moment for everything that you are. It means accepting your emotions for what they are and putting your physical, emotional, and mental well-being first. So how and why to practice self-love? So now that we know that self-love motivates you to make healthy choices in life. So what are they saying is our motivation? Self-love. When you hold yourself in high esteem, you'll be more likely to choose things that nurture your well-being and serve you well. These things may take be in the form of eating healthy, exercising, or having healthy relationships. Ways to practice self-love include becoming mindful, 
People who have more self-love tend to know what they think, feel, and want. Ladies, if the word mindful is used, run. Okay, we'll talk about that more probably on a different day. I don't have time this morning, but the word mindful is basically Buddhism repackaged. So if you hear that word, it's not being mindful like, I should be sensitive to the needs of others around me. It's, it's a different form of meditation. Again, can't go there, but we will someday. Taking actions based on need rather than want is what they're saying. By, fo by staying focused on what you need, you turn away from automatic behavior patterns that get you into trouble, keep you stuck in the past, and lessen self-love. So we should be practicing good self-care. You will love yourself more when you take better care of your basic needs. People high in self-love nourish themselves daily through healthy activities like sound nutrition, exercise, proper sleep, intimacy, and healthy social interactions. Making room for healthy habits. Start truly caring for yourself by mirroring that in what you eat, how you exercise, and what you spend time doing. Do stuff not to get it done or because you have to, but because you care about you. Finally, to practice self-love, start being kind, patient, gentle, and compassionate to yourself the way you would with someone else that you care about. So all of this, ladies, is what our society around us is drinking in by the droves. Now, sometimes we're like, oh, Rachel, I would never imbibe of that, but yet... Sometimes even in our Instagram, our Facebook, the TikToks, they Christianize it. So you might not hear that direct, but you'll hear something like this. There is no reason to keep tearing yourself down when God is building you up every day. Compare that with scripture. Is that what scripture says? Or something like this. Don't let anyone make you question your worth. They have no idea. God knows you are worthy of every bit of happiness and love in this life and for eternity. Again, think about it. How does scripture view that? We have to be so careful in what we are imbibing, what we are thinking, thoughts about God, thoughts about ourselves. So ladies, let's go to scripture and just do one scripture that tells us how God proclaims himself and how we are to think of ourselves. So let's open in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Now these platitudes, especially the Christianese ones I just read you, a lot of times they're like sugar. They taste really nice going down, but then they just turn to useless fat and weigh you down. They will slowly poison your thinking about yourself and how you think about the one true God. So this morning, let's look at Isaiah 66 and let the scripture mold what we are thinking. So Isaiah 66, the very last chapter there in Isaiah, first, we're just going to do verse 1 and 2. Scripture says, thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where, then, is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now, ladies, as we are thinking through Isaiah, sometimes it's a little helpful that we get a little bit of background information of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah is a collection of oracles, prophecies, and reports. But the common theme woven throughout all of Isaiah is the message of salvation. The messenger of the message of salvation is the prophet Isaiah, whose name means salvation of Yahweh. There was, according to these writings, no hope in anything that was made by people. The northern tribe of Israel 
had been carried away into captivity already, so right around 722 B.C. And the kingdom of Judah was in the middle of sin and idolatry and evil. The kingdom of Assyria had dominated the Fertile Crescent and posed a major threat to both kingdoms. And the kingdom of Babylon was gaining power and would replace Assyria as the dominant threat. So in view of the fast-changing international scene, the people of Israel would be concerned about their lot in life. What would become of their promises of God? The prophet began preaching during the Assyrian crisis about the time Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom and was threatening the southern kingdom. Although Hezekiah was able to survive that invasion through the help of the prophet, he foolishly allowed ambassadors from Babylon to see the treasures of the kingdom, a sin that brought Isaiah's announcement of the Babylonian captivity which was coming in the future. And so Isaiah begins to prepare the people. But it wouldn't be that generation because the exile began about 100 years after the death of Isaiah. But the second portion of the book looks in a general way to that future and writes his message starting in, in chapter 40 of comfort and hope for the exiles of Judah, as well as descriptions of the restoration of Jerusalem. The hope of such a salvation issues into a glorious vision of the new heavens and earth in the age to come in the last few verses. So here, the final chapter of Isaiah, declaring the word of the Lord, Isaiah's book of prophecy begins with a powerful declaration that God proclaims of himself. So number one on your outlines, we see God's splendor in majesty. God's splendor in majesty. Now the Bible often uses the stars of heaven to represent an extremely large quantity. Genesis 22:17 teaches that God would multiply Abraham's descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Genesis 32:12 makes it clear that this represents a number that's uncountable by humans. The sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered full multitude. These are excellent analogies, are they not? Clearly, the sand of the sea and the stars in the universe cannot be counted exactly by humans, though, of course, they can be roughly estimated. Interestingly, the two quantities come out to about the same order of magnitude. It is 10 to the 22nd power for the mathematicians around us, or 10 billion trillion, give or take a factor of 10 or so. Just a mammothly huge number. It was not always believed that the stars were so numerous. The astronomer Claudius Ptolemy, I worked on that, cataloged 1,022 stars in his work, The Algamist. Many astronomers believed that these were the only stars that existed, even though Platonomy never claimed that his catalog was exhaustive. Of course, there are many more stars than this number. The total number of stars that can be distinctly seen from both hemispheres under ideal dark sky conditions with the unaided eye is around 10,000. The precise number depends on how good your eyesight is. Today, with the help of modern science, we have an even greater appreciation of just how innumerable the stars are. Powerful telescopes allow us to see stars much too distant and faint to be seen without optical aid. Even binoculars can reveal countless multitudes of stars that cannot be seen by the unaided eye. It is estimated that our galaxy alone contains over 100 billion stars. Astronomers believe that there are more galaxies in the visible universe than there are stars in our own. So more galaxies, collection of stars, than the hundred billion stars that are in the Milky Way alone. Astronomers believe that there are, oh, sorry, each of these galaxies would have hundreds of millions to trillions of stars. 
So kind of, I know I'm reading lots of really, really big numbers, but try to absorb that. Our galaxy, billions of stars, and then they think there are many more galaxies out there with even more stars than our one little galaxy. The closest star, just to kind of get, help us try to wrap our minds around um, proximity or closeness, the closest star, so our very next neighbor next to our dear sun, is Proxima Centauri, which is 4.24 light years away. A light year is 5.88 trillion miles. So ladies, if we started today and we wanted to walk to Centauri, that would take about 950 million years. Well, that's silly, we say. Let's jump on a, a ship like Apollo 11 that went to the moon. That would still take 43,000 years to get to the closest star. We're not talking about the other galaxies. We're just talking the closest one to us. Absolutely mind-blowing. It's helpful for us, even though we're sleuthing through a bunch of huge numbers. It is really good for us to stop and think of the immensity of our God. So what is God declaring about himself according to our verse? A on your outline, heaven is his throne. Heaven is his throne. In verse 1 there, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Dr. Arthur Harding in his textbook on astronomy asks, who can study the science of astronomy and contemplate the starlit heavens with a knowledge of the dimensions of the celestial bodies, their movements and their enormous distances without bowing his head in reverence to the power that brought this universe into being and safely guides its individual members. So ladies, just absolutely mind-blowing to think that with a word, God spoke this into existence. And too, I even like the end of that, safely guides its individual members. There is no rogue star out there in the universe smashing around space wherever it wants. God carefully placed each one and has the movement going all at the same time. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. So ladies, is there anything we can add to embellish such a throne made out of celestial bodies? Is there anything we could offer to one who is so rich in majesty? Not only is heaven his throne, but B, earth is his footstool. Earth is his footstool. Now, a footstool, back in the writer's day, is a piece of furniture for resting the feet. They especially made them for thrones because kings like to be way high up, so their thrones tended to be really, really large and magnificent. So you didn't want a king with dangling feet, so you would build him a footstool to rest his feet upon. So the footstool of King Tut of Egypt was carved with pictures of his enemies. Other pharaohs were portrayed with their feet on their enemies' heads. The footstool thus became a symbol for dominion which kind of helps us, it kind of opens it up for us of complete dominion. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord, meaning the Father, says to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then in our text, God is declaring the earth is my footstool. He has complete dominion over the earth. So God declares that heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool, and he has a couple questions he is asking. C, where is a building that could contain him? 
we look at the end of that verse. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? Now here we start getting a picture for why God is addressing this to the people of Israel. God is dealing with a prevailing attitude amongst the people and one that unfortunately continues into Israel's future. They are puffed up and they believe that they are doing him a great service by building him a temple. Now back then the people of false idol culture of that day believed that a temple was a structure usually built for the purpose of and always dedicated to religious or spiritual activities, including prayer, meditation, sacrifice, and worship. It's interesting, and these are the idol worshipers. It's interesting how the devil just switches it up. Like, sure, sure, you can pray, you can meditate, you can have sacrifices, you can have worship, just don't worship the one true God. So always that replacement. So this, the temple back then was a sacred precinct defined by a priest as the dwelling place of a god or gods, and the structure built there was created to honor the spirit of a certain place. Early temples were constructed on sites where the people felt it had a supernatural quality to the land around them, which indicated the presence of a god, gods, or spirits. So the prevailing thought of the day back then was that the temple could contain their God and be a house for their God. The Israelites are allowing society around them to seep into their thoughts about God himself. They became proud, thinking that making God a temple, that's a great act of service. This is almost, if you can think about it, if you went outside and you saw a little grouping of ants, and if they could communicate to you, them saying, look at this ant hill that we built for you, so you can live in it. Aren't you proud of us? And yet the separation, way, way, way worse than an ant to communicate to us and try to build something for us. God has no need for such a place. The entire universe is his throne and the earth is his footstool, completely under his dominion and his sovereign care. John Calvin said, yet as the minds of men are prone to superstition, the Jews converted into obstacles to themselves those things which were intended to be aids. And when they ought to have risen by faith to heaven, they believed that God was bound to them and worshipped him only in a careless manner, or rather made a game of worshipping him at their own pleasure. Do you see what he's saying? The very things that should have been an aid to them in their worship of God, in their thoughts of God, they made it into, God, you are bound to us because look what we did for you. And instead of their thoughts rising and looking at the heavens and looking at the magnificence of God's own throne, they wanted to bring God down to their level to obligate him. Look what we did for you. Now you give us what we want. This is the prevailing thought all through Isaiah. So we have seen here our God's splendor and majesty. And in verse 2, we see number 2 on your outlines. God's splendor in creation. God's splendor in creation. Look down at verse 2, if you will. God says, for my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So, A, he has made all things. Cecil Francis Alexander wrote a lovely little hymn that we teach our preschoolers. It's Lisa here. Lisa, just so you know, her maiden name was Humphreys. You might know the hymn yourself. We sing it at Kingdom Kids all the time. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Each little flower that opens, each little bird that sings, 
God made their glowing colors. God made their tiny wings. The purple-headed mountain, the river running by, the sunset and the morning that brightens up the sky, the cold wind in the winter, the pleasant summer sun, the ripe fruits in the garden, God made them every one. God gave us eyes to see them and lips that we might tell how great is God Almighty who has made all things well. And ladies, such a great hymn to teach your little ones or not so little ones to be focusing on the amazingness of what God has made around us, his splendor in that creation, every intricate detail of creation that has come into being by the power of his might and his supreme intelligence. He is also the master coder. This is from a surgeon who wanted us to think through the praises of God. We've talked about the magnificence and the immensity of the universe, but even God's amazingness in the smallest things that we can see. Looking at the cellular structures makes me appreciate, this is this surgeon talking, how God made us so intricately and more so diversely. He planned the function and design of each cell. How amazing that God chose to custom make each one of us. God is the master coder. He put code, our code in our DNA that tells each cell how it is to function. Three billion letters of DNA contain instructions that, if printed in a tiny font, would fill 300 books of a thousand pages each long. Many different types of cells make up the human body, bone cells, fat cells, blood cells, and muscle cells, to name a few. Even in the eye, there are many specialized cells. When we look at something, we are viewing it with 127 million visual cells. Rods and cones are lined up in rows, rods allowing us to see shades of gray, with cones giving us high definition resolution and filling our senses with more than a million unique colors, and we can't even see them all. The cornea has five layers, and each functions with a different purpose. The lens also contains different cells within its structure. The clear lens and cornea allow light transmission to hit the rods and cones from which electrical impulses fire messages into the brain and voila, we see. What is so amazing is that it seems so effortless. Did anybody open their eyes this morning and like think about it real hard to see? Now some of us who are aging, we have to focus and it takes a little longer to focus, but did you have to think to see? No. So all this coding and decoding, a myriad processes in microseconds, yet we seem, seem so unconscious of all this activity done by the concerted action and reaction of diverse cells of our body. Isaiah 40, 25 helps us think something through. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, speaking of the stars, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So we see that he has made all things as well as be. By him all things came into being. So that, that second half of that verse two, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now these two phrases may seem redundant, but there's an element of the Lord commenting on the fact that all came into being by him and all was still in being because of him. Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, 
for the world is mine and all that it contains. So ladies, he does not need man sacrifices. He does not need a temple built by man's hands since they're already his. He does not need a home since every home in existence was built by his own hand and by the word of his own mouth. So here we see man puffed up with pride, thinking that he is doing something great for God, bringing him sacrifices, building him a temple. But ladies, you might be thinking, but, but Rach, you've read Leviticus, right? He commanded sacrifices to be brought. These things happened in the Old Testament. King Solomon dedicated the temple to the living God in a very humble way. But yet what God is addressing here is the spiritual hypocrisy. We see it reflected in the beginning of the book of Isaiah in chapter 1, verses, starting with verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to peer before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So at the end of the day, the Israelites were worshiping God in hopes of what they could get out of him. They brought the sacrifices, they built the temples, they did the things in order to get the blessings instead of bringing the sacrifices and doing the rituals out of a heart that loved him and longed to obey him. And God sees the heart, does he not, ladies? This is hypocrisy was not fooling him. Just because society around them thought, if I do A, B, and C, then, then my God will be pleased, and then he'll do what I want him to do. And the Israelites thought they could do the same with their God. But he is the living God who knows the beginning from the end. Brian Borgman says this, corrupt Hearts corrupt worship, which corrupts theology. Can you follow that? So corrupt hearts corrupt our worship, which corrupts theology. And theology there, he explained, he's like, it's simply our thoughts about God. That is what theology is. It is the study of God. But our theology is built off of what we think about our God. He said, we can even rationalize. Well, if, if I read more, or, or if I give the church more, or if I pray more, then maybe God will bless me. Or maybe we have thoughts like this. If I can just get my act together, then I can really help God out. If I can just mm, pull myself up on my bootstraps, try a little harder, then I can really give God something. Who is those thoughts wrapped around? Ourselves. Because I want something. Oh, I'll just, I'll do another. See, God, I did a really good job. I read three chapters this morning instead of two. Bing! Now, we might not honestly say that, but sometimes do our attitudes and our actions betray us? So maybe we're not thinking that in the forefronts of our minds, but we get frustrated when things don't go our way. And we say, why, God? Why? I did it the right way. I taught my kids. Why aren't they loving you? 
I tried to do what's right, and I even admitted I wasn't perfect at it. Why this? Why now? That's our attitudes coming out in the, but I did everything right. I worshiped you the right way. So why am I not getting what I think I deserve? So as we're thinking through these things, there is a glorious thought. God does not wipe out the Israelites right then because of their hypocrisy. God does not wipe us out for our haughty wickedness. Instead, he gives them an element of hope. So number two on your outlines. God, I'm sorry, number three. God's splendor in his promise. So number one was majesty. Number two is God, God's splendor in his creation. Number three, God's splendor in his promise. At the end of verse two there, he says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So here, ladies, he's not turning away. He is not consuming with fire, even though righteously he definitely could. He says, A, he will look. That word look there means to take note of, to observe with care or pay close attention to, to have regard towards. What a difference than his righteous disdain for those who think they're going to win his favor by doing all the right things, just the outward ceremonies and rituals instead of having a right heart. But he tells us what a comfort. I will look. So let's take a look at B. What are the characteristics of the one God will look to? Characteristics. The very first characteristic he names somebody who is humble. And oh my, the definition of humble poor, weak, afflicted. And it can be the pious, afflicted by wicked nations or by the wicked in Israel itself. We don't necessarily love to draw that close to ourselves, do we? I want to be poor and weak and afflicted. Stuart Scott, in his very helpful pamphlet, From Pride to Humility, said the definition, his definition of humility is it's the mindset of Christ, a focus on God and others, a pursuit of the recognition and exaltation of God, and a desire to glorify and please God in all things and by all things he has given. Now contrast that to his definition of pride. Because sometimes it's, it's really good to know definitions in both sides of the coin. What does this definition remind you of? Listen, he says, the definition of pride is the mindset of self, a focus on self and the service of self, a pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. What did that sound like? The whole self-love blog I just read you, it blew my mind. I'm like, wow, Stuart, you nailed it. All of that is just pride. It's all about me, my wants, my needs. And yet, what is the mindset of Christ? He goes on and says in that booklet, if pride is the epidemic vice, then humility is the endangered virtue. Humility is so rare because it's unnatural to men. Only a Christian who has the Spirit of God can learn genuine humility. So ladies, as we think through, God looks to the one who is humble. Psalm 8 gives us a glimpse of his thoughts. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what 
is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him. Now this, ladies, is a man who is thinking rightly about himself and his God. Who am I? I am literally less than a speck on the earth in the middle of God's great universe. And yet, he will look to the one who is humble. What a promise. There's another description there. Number two, contrite of spirit. Contrite of spirit. Contrite there means smitten or stricken. Again, not necessarily words that we love holding dear and close to ourselves, but necessary. And this contrite of spirit, ladies, is the Hebrew version of what we were learning this week, poor in spirit. So this is synonymous with poor in spirit, that meaning you have no resources. You have total incapability because of your lack of resources. So this is a brokenness over sin and the acknowledgement that we have no resources of our own in order to repair ourselves. Joel Beakey says, we lose all our rights before God, but stay at mercy's feet. So this person recognizes, not in a self-consumed way of, woe is me, I can never get anything right, I'll never be able to succeed, I'll never be able to spiritually grow. This person is broken over their own sin, and they recognize, I've got nothing. There's nothing I can do. I cannot fix myself before a holy God. But remember, ladies, remember last week's lesson, what Christ has done for us. You're right. We're right. There is nothing we can do. And yet, Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is our great high priest. Christ has done it for us. So that is what Beaky means. We lose all our rights before God. We, we have no right to say, God, I deserve. But the contrite of spirit stays at mercy's feet. They do the Hebrews 4. They run to the throne of grace in the time of need because they know God will pour out mercy on them because they have a correct understanding of who God is. So number two, contrite of spirit. Number three, that third characteristic, they tremble at God's word. They tremble, the person trembles at God's word. That word trembles means in awe and reverence at the word of God. This is not a servile fear, a trembling, being afraid of in an improper way. This is somebody who is so in awe of God, in awe of his word, that they would tremble. So what could it look like? Those who tremble at his word. So we're going to contrast those who tremble at his word and those who don't. And just making sure I give credit to credit is due. I listened to both Dr. Beakey and Borgman on these. So it's a mishmash of both. So, but um, just so you know, but those who tremble at his word, what does that look like? If I want to be somebody who trembles at the word of God, what does that look like? It means you fear grieving the Lord by sinning. You're not afraid of God, but you do have a righteous, godly reverence and awe for him. And you fear grieving the Lord by sinning. Beaky said, this means to be word conscious day by day. Word conscious, meaning it's in your mind day by day reading, meditating, and applying for the purpose of obedience. We don't read to just read. We don't meditate to just meditate. We do it for the purpose of obedience. This person is continually grateful for what God has revealed in his word. 
He also does not pick apart or criticize scripture, but he bows the knee. Isaiah 45 gives us a picture of this. God is speaking here. He says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. So let's look at the opposite. How about those who don't tremble at God's word? These people are not humble. They're masters of their own fate. They want to be their own God. They drink in the thoughts of self-love. Of course they should love themselves because who could be more important than them? Because the world is not a kind place, am I right, ladies? So they think, well, if nobody else is going to be nice to me, I'm going to be nice to me. I will declare what I need and what my needs and my wants, and I'm going to go after it because nobody else is going to hand it to me. So they sit there and say, I will declare my own rightness. He is wise in his own eyes. A fool is wise in his own eyes. Those who don't tremble at God's word don't want to let go of their sin, honestly. There is no brokenness here. They think, I'm okay. I'm just human. Everybody struggles with this. Everybody struggles with something. You don't expect me to be perfect, right? Or they blame shift. Well, I'm only this way because my parents, they were horrible. You don't even understand. So that's why I am the way I am. Or they say, this is just part of my personality. You're just going to have to put up with it because this is how I was put together. No brokenness over sin. No looking at themselves to say, is this right before a holy God? What does God's word say? And we let God's word mold us and shape us into the image of his son. Not a stiffening of the neck, a raising of the head. How dare you tell me what I should do? Or they might talk themselves out of the applicability of Scripture. They talk themselves out of the applicability of Scripture. Only the promises of Scripture apply to them, but not the threats. Be like, yeah, well, I don't understand that part of the Bible, so I'm just going to leave that out. I just want to get to the good stuff because I need my heart encouraged. I need to just know how great God thinks I am. It's a wrong view of the whole scope of everything. Or they respond with indifference. They just can't be bothered. They just don't care. So scripture gives us a glimpse of what God views people who are indifferent to his word in Zechariah 7, 11 and 12. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. So here, ladies, we see the Lord's viewpoint towards those who are indifferent or hard in their hearts. Or I love the descriptiveness of, of Scripture. Have you ever seen a, a two-year-old throw a shoulder at you? Mm. Not going to listen. Is that not a great picture of what goes on in our own hearts when we do not want to bow the knee and we do not want to listen to Scripture? Now, there might be one of you in here that is saying, well, Rachel, what do, what do I do? What if... I, w I want to tremble, or at least I want to want to tremble. What if I don't tremble enough? Beaky had something that I thought was very, very comforting, even to my own soul as we were thinking through this. He said, if we are dependent on the degree of our experience, 
then we have failed to understand our text. Our texts are talking about the marks that we know something of, not the degree or depth that we should understand that. We come with empty hands. We come realizing we cannot be in awe as we should, but Christ had them in all his fullness. So we hide in the shadow of his wings. Don't stay away if you don't have enough. He is the one with all the riches. So do you see and hear what he is saying there? Christ had the humility. He had the contrite of spirit. He trembled at the word of God. He has it in all his fullness. So if you feel as though, oh, Rach, I don't do this well enough. I don't have enough trembling at the word of God. Run to Christ. He is the one who has it in the first place. And he gives richly and freely. So instead of the self-love that is often promoted by the world, do we seek to have a mind renewed by the word of God, viewing God in his majesty? Or do we want to take what the world is offering and nestle it close because it's like that sugar. It just tastes so good and we just want to believe it. Like, yeah, if I was just nicer to myself, if I just thought better of myself, then I would do better. No. View God in his majesty. Instead of putting ourselves first, are we thinking through how to exalt and recognize God for all he has done throughout our daily life? Are we, like Beaky said, word conscience, constantly, it's right here. Like um, Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, if you were to cut him, he would bleed biblene. So do we bleed biblene when we get cut? Does the scripture come out of our, just ooze out of our, every one of our pores? Do we exalt and recognize God for all he has done? Are we seeking to be humble? Ladies, this is so countercultural in our culture today. But we need to be countercultural to show them the difference that Christ makes. We are to follow his example, not their example. Are we seeking to be humble, contrite, and tremble at his word? Are we doing our acts of service in order to earn our blessings from God? Or are we coming to him and singing, Nothing in my hand I bring, Sim simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray.